Father, we are truly grateful for your word. We're grateful, Lord, for the direction, the correction, the encouragement, the strength, the food it is for our soul. We pray, Lord, that you would do that right now by the power of your spirit. Feed us, all of us, Lord. Strengthen us for your purpose, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there was these guys, actually four guys. They're four expectant fathers in a waiting room as their wives are in labor. Well, the nurse comes out into the waiting room, very excited, and she tells the first man, congratulations, you are the father of twins. And he says, what a coincidence. He said, I work for the Minnesota Twins organization. Well, then the nurse returned again a second, second time, and she said to the second man, you're the father of triplets. And he said, wow, what a coincidence. He said, I work for the 3M Corporation. And the nurse tells the third man, and you're the father of quadruplets. And he said, you got to be kidding me. I work for the Four Seasons Hotel. And about that time, the fourth man faints. And so they finally revive him and say, what happened? Why why did you faint? He said, I work for (laughs) 7-Eleven. So however many children you have as dads here, happy Father's Day. Now, we've been doing this series called God's Grand Story, the story of the Bible. And remember, we divided the Old Testament into six parts. We had beginnings, then wilderness wanderings, and the third part, where we're at right now, the promised land. And then we're going to move into the united kingdom under King David, then the divided kingdom after King Solomon, and then we're going to have captivity and the coming kingdom. And that's the Old Testament. But right now, we are in the third section of these six sections, and we're entitling the promised land. Now, remember, just a little review, Moses is dead, and Joshua is the new leader, and he's leading, he's led the Israelites across the River Jordan, and they had begun to conquer the Promised Land. I want to give you a summary of the book of Joshua. Now, the first half of the book of Joshua, you have the Israelites invading the Promised Land, the land of Canaan. That's the first half of the book. The second half of the book of Joshua, you have the Israelites distributing the land and beginning to occupy the land of promise, the land of Canaan. That essentially is the book of Joshua in two parts. Now, let me give you a little bit of a reminder of what's led up to this point, because you have a generation that when it comes to the end of the book of Joshua, we have a generation that has seen the power of God. They saw the River Jordan dry up and water just, you know, on a, like a wall of water heap up as they crossed on dry ground. They saw the walls of Jericho after they shouted, fall down supernaturally, just cave down. They saw God fight against the five kings, the Amorites, destroying them with large hailstones. And they saw the sun stand still for a whole day of battle and victory. So what they saw throughout the book of Joshua is they saw their enemies subdued before them. So I think this is an important point to remember as we're about to get into some more specifics, is that this generation experienced the power of God firsthand. This is important. They experienced the power of God firsthand. It was also a generation that was forced to trust God because their enemies were stronger than them. That also affected their relationship with God firsthand. Keep that in mind. Now, we get to the last two chapters of the book of Joshua. Joshua is right before he dies, is going to exhort 
the Israelites. Here he is, their commander-in-chief, 110 years old, and he's going to exhort them. He does this in Joshua chapter 23 and Joshua chapter 24. Now, most of Joshua 23 and half of 24, he's reminding them, first of all, of all the great things God has done for them and why God should be honored by them. But then we get to the end of Joshua chapter 24, or the middle of it, starting in verse 14, he makes a powerful declaration followed by a powerful challenge. He takes a sword, so to speak, and draws a line in the sand, talks about his commitment and challenges them to make the same commitment. So let's pick the story up in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. Now, therefore, this is Joshua speaking to the people. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So that is the line in the sand that Joshua lays out the challenge. Now the people respond. Joshua 24, verse 16, the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For the Lord, our God, is he who brought us and our fathers out, up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whom midst, whom midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. So, so far, so good. They have said, we will cross the line with you, Joshua. We will serve the Lord too. Now, Joshua wants to make sure that they understand something. He wants to make sure they understand he's talking about serve the Lord only, not serve the Lord and your other gods. He wants to make sure they understand this. So let's pick it up in verse 19. Then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord. Now, it's implied here in other gods. You'll see in the context. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. The people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Joshua then says this. Now, therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. So now after that, That challenge and that response, shortly after that, Joshua will die. In fact, we'll pick it up in the book of Judges now. Chapter 2, verse 8. 
And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. So what happened after that? After that awesome mountaintop moment of major commitment, what happens? Let's pick it up in Joshua chapter 2, verse 10. All that generation, the generation we just talked about, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So after Joshua dies and the elders die, all that generation dies. And there arose another generation after them. So now we're talking about their children and their grandchildren. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they, served, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. So what happened here? After that generation that made this great commitment, after they died, the next generation quickly begins to run after the gods of their culture. So how could this happen? You know, one thing we do know is this, that parents who compromise can produce children who don't believe. But towards the end, after Joshua challenged them, they did put away their gods. The question is, what, what was it too late at this point? Had so much damage already been done. Well, let's keep looking at this because what else do we know about this generation that Joshua challenged that day? That generation that crossed that line. What else do we know about them? Judges chapter 2 verse 7 says this. And the people, this generation that he challenged who crossed that line, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. So this people, they served the Lord until jo after Joshua dies, after all the elders die. This generation who had seen all the great work of the Lord that he had done for Israel. So the generation of Joshua served the Lord faithfully all the days of Joshua and the elders who survived Joshua. So we do know this. They did get it right at the end. But I want you to notice this phrase. The phrase that says, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. See, that generation saw the miracles. That generation experienced firsthand God's faithfulness when he had to come through. That generation had come to know God, you could say firsthand, they had come to believe in him firsthand, at least by the end. But I want you to notice that the next generation, the ones who quickly turned to the gods of their culture, 
are lacking something. The text tells us what they're lacking. Judges chapter 2, verse 10 says this phrase, who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. They didn't know the Lord firsthand. They didn't know him. And they didn't really know the work he had done for Israel. Not firsthand, they didn't. They heard the stories. They hadn't seen the power. So my question is, how do parents pass those two things along to their children? I think parents can easily pass along knowing about the Lord to their children. But how do you pass along knowing the Lord to your children? I think parents can easily pass along the stories about what God did in the past. But how do you pass along that first experience, that firsthand experience of God's power to your children? Knowing him and knowing his power versus knowing about him and hearing stories of the past of his power. D.L. Moody, in his final days before he died, he said this. He said, if I could relive my life, I would devote my entire ministry to reaching children for God. Thought about that quote. I thought, if I could relive my life, I know one thing for sure. I would be a better father. My number one priority would be for my kids, particularly not just to know about them, but make sure that you know him and experience his power firsthand. There's something really important about that for all of our children and grandchildren. So I want to summarize uh, to you just four important lessons I, I have learned as a father and four things that I'm committed to do the rest of my life as a father and a grandfather. And I think these lessons apply to all of us, but particularly I'm focused on dads on this Father's Day. Lesson number one is look up. Look up to God. All dads need to look up to God and receive two things, I believe. We need to receive healing and we need to receive hope and help. Help that we need to raise our children. Let's talk about the first one. We need to look up and receive healing. See, whether we like it or not, the way that we each in this room and online, the way that we view God is greatly impacted by how we have viewed our earthly father. If our earthly father, if our relationship with our earthly father was a certain way, we tend to, to have a similar kind of relationship with our heavenly father until we're transformed. For example, if, if you had a very strict and critical father, then your tendency is to view God as very strict and critical. If you had a very distant father, then your tendency is to view God as distant. If your father was absent or uninvolved most in your life, then your tendency is to see God as absent and uninvolved. If you had a father that you had to perform for to get his approval, then when you turn to God, you start feeling like you have to perform for him to get his approval. So those who've had a difficult difficulty in the relationship with their earthly father tend to have that same difficulty in their relationship with their heavenly father. So the truth of the matter is that some... Uh, of us dads here to, can live day in and day out with a distorted view of, of God. But we need to understand that if we have this distorted view of God, it can be corrected. We can have a true view. We can be transformed by the renewing of our mind with the truth. 
Well, here's one big truth that really helped me tremendously as a, as a young father beginning to see God accurately was simply John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So Jesus has come to show us what the Father's like. Now that tells me this. That tells me that, that the Father is not aloof or distant he know, he, he's like Jesus. He knows every, our every hope. He knows our every dream. He feels our every disappointment. He feels every pain. He shares every joy. It also tells me that he's not authoritarian. He's not just interested in our obedience. He most of all is interested in us, relationship. That tells us that he's not abusive. He came to take our pain, not inflict pain. That tells us he's not absent. Remember, Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He's always close. He's not accusing. He always forgives. He forgets. And so the, the more we rightly understand our Heavenly Father, this is crucial, that as fathers, we, are, we get the healing that we need by seeing God the Father accurately. We forgive our earthly fathers where they failed. We see God accurately. And in that, that will enable us as we are healed to better be able to release into our children what they need to be. One of the things that I still, I'll never forget a certain, uh, certain time when I was a little boy that me and my brother both played on the same baseball team that my dad coached. My brother's older than me. And it was report card day, and we went right from school to baseball practice, and we had our report cards. We handed them to our dad. And my dad looked at my brother's report card and said, you made the honor roll. And I was thinking, what's that? <laughs> I didn't make the honor roll. But after that, my dad didn't, I know he didn't mean to do this, but after that, he put his arm around my older brother, congratulating him, and they began to walk off, and I'm walking behind them with my glove. But I remember thinking, I don't know what the honor roll is, but I'm going to be on it from now on. Because I wanted that from my father. But what I did is I then took that into my relationship with my heavenly father, and early on in my ministry, I constantly had this pressure that I put on myself to perform for him to get his approval. Till finally, I could forgive my father for where he had, that had wounded me, and I could just begin to see my heavenly father accurately, that he totally accepts me and loves me infinitely as I am. And I don't have to perform to get his approval. I do want to obey him because I have his approval, but that's different. So once you know the truth about the fatherhood of God, what happens is you find yourself wanting to draw near him. And you find yourself wanting to know him. You find yourself wanting to have this intimate relationship with God who's crazy in love with you. So there is a father wound that a lot of folks need to be healed from. I'm going to ask Brandy to go ahead and come on up, Randy and Larry, because we're going to actually have a, a bit of a ministry time right here in, the, in this message before we close it, before we go further in the message. There is a father wound that I think that if a father doesn't get healing from this, it's going to be hard for him to be able to pass on to his children what they need. And this uh, father wound is healed by doing two simple things. And that is forgive your father for where he's failed you. Just forgive him, release him. Don't hold it against him. And then begin to embrace the truth about our heavenly father. So there's a healing that takes place from that wound. And I've asked Brandy just to sing this song over us as a prayer. And I believe the Holy Spirit wants to heal some father wounds. It's not just in dads, it's in everyone in the room. You know, anyone can have a father wound. And so this is a time where we just release our fathers. One of the greatest ways we can honor our fathers today is forgive them. Just forgive them for any way that they let you down, they failed you, forgive them. 
And then embrace your heavenly father as he really is. As he really is, totally loves you, accepts you, crazy about you. So, Father, we ask that you do that even right now, that there would be a release of healing by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. I speak the name of Jesus over you. In your hurting, in your sorrow, I will ask my God to move. I speak the name because it's all that I can do. In desperation, I seek heaven and pray this for you. I pray for your healing. Circumstances would change. I pray that the fear inside would flee. In Jesus' name, I pray that a breakthrough would happen today. I pray miracles over your life. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. I speak the name of all authority. Declaring blessings, every promise he is faithful to keep. I speak the name no grave could ever hold. He is greater, he is stronger, he's the God of possible. I pray for your healing, circumstances would change. I pray that the fear inside would flee in Jesus' name. I pray that a breakthrough would happen today. I pray miracles over your life in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. We pray that, Lord. We just pray that for every father wound. We pray for significant healing right now in the name of of Jesus. Amen. So the first thing that we need to do is look up for healing. The second thing we need to do is we need to look up for help. Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From whence shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Dads, none of us can do this alone. We need God's help. We need to constantly be asking God, would you help me be the father I need to be today? Make that a daily prayer. Help me, Lord. Help me to really be what my kids need today. Fatherhood's hard, and we need to look up for help. So that's the first thing. We need to look up for healing and look up for help. The second thing, I think, is for dads, is we need, is that I learned my second lesson is, is line up. Line up your priorities. The great Chicago Bears running back Gail Sayers understood this principle, and he lived by the following motto. He said, I am third. God is first, my family is second, and I am third. Some of you guys remember that campaign that happened some recent years ago, I am second campaign. I prefer the I am third campaign. You know that God is first, my family is second, and I am third. But we have to line up our priorities to show that. I think as dads, a lot of times we're more driven by the pressures than we are by our priorities. 
We have to make the choice. So wait a second. I have the, this priority that I am third. I'm going to always put God first, my family second, myself third. You know, it's, it's interesting. I've been beside a lot of beds with somebody dying over the years, over the decades. And I've never ever, and I've heard a, a lot of people's last words. I've never heard anybody regret before they died that they didn't have a higher position in the company or they didn't have more possessions. I didn't hear anybody in their last words regret they didn't have more fame and they didn't have more fortune. I've seen it over and over again. What people, what matters to people before they die are two things, and that is who they love and who loves them. That's what matters. And that's what should matter for all of us, all of us dads. Our priorities should show that. We need to line up our priorities with what they really are in our hearts. God is first, our family is second, and we're third. So the first thing, we got to look up, dads, for healing and for help. Second thing, we got to line up, line up our priorities about starting with our, our families after God. And thirdly, third lesson I've learned is lighten up. Lighten up. Ephesians 6, 4 says, And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Colossians three twenty one. Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. See, it's so easy for fathers to be too harsh on their children, even well-meaning fathers. I tell you, I, I, sometimes I push my kids too hard. Sometimes I was too harsh with them. And so, Dad, we, we have to watch this. It's possible for us to cause our kids to lose heart. So this is the third thing, third lesson I've learned is lighten up. Lighten up on your kids. Lighten up on your spouse. Lighten up on yourself. You know, God intends for life to be enjoyed, not just endured. We often get so busy making a living, we aren't making a life. And so that's the third lesson I've learned is lighten up. Lighten up, dads. And lesson number four, I think it's important for all of us dads, and that is never give up. Lesson number four, never give up on your children. I was talking to a dad recently. He's told me, he said, I'm through. I've given up on my kids. I threw in the towel. They're not listening to me. My response is you can't, you never give up on your kids. You never give up on them. No matter what they've done, no matter what they're doing, you keep loving them, you keep believing in them. You never give up on them. So dads, never give up on your kids, no matter what they've done, no matter what they're doing. Keep loving them, keep believing in them. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7, many of us know this verse, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When I was doing an exegetical paper back in seminary with a Greek, this Greek, with a Greek text, I came across a commentary by Robertson and Plummer's exegetical commentary, and there's a statement in there that, that, that just impacted me dramatically. Because they went ahead and summarized that verse, love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, endures all things. They summarize it this way. When love has no evidence, it believes the best. When the evidence is adverse, it hopes for the best. And when hopes are disappointed, it still courageously waits. Let me say this again. When love has no evidence, it believes the best. When the evidence is, is adverse, it hopes for the best. And when hopes are disappointed, it still courageously waits. Never give up on the ones that you love. Never stop believing, never stop hoping, never give up 
Now, that verse goes on to say, love never fails. And I realize there are parents in this room who have grown children that are not walking with the Lord, grown children that have hurt them deeply, grown children that have not lived out the life you hope for them. But what I want to say today before we close is it's not over. Never stop believing, never stop hoping, never give up on them. There is a story of these two men who were in a museum and they looked at a painting and the painting in a museum was of two people playing chess. One man on one side of the chessboard, he, he looks bewildered. And the other one, the other side of the chessboard is the devil himself. And he's laughing. And underneath the painting, it says, checkmate. Checkmate. The devil is laughing. Checkmate. You're all out of moves. Well, these two people who are watching, they're looking at this painting. One of the men was a chess, was a chess uh, expert. He was a master in chess. And uh, he kept studying it. His friend says, let's go. Let's, let's move on. He said, no, no, you go on. I got, I've got to look at this because something's not right here. So he went wandering around, checked some other paintings, came back, and he's still studying the painting. He said, are you still looking at the same painting? He said, yes, because I need to find who did this painting. He needs to either change the name under it or he needs to change the painting. Because the, in this painting, it says, it says checkmate, but if you look carefully, it's not checkmate. The king still has one more move. You know, there have been a lot of people throughout history that felt like it was checkmate. The devil's got me. I lost. Give up. He's laughing. And we need to understand all throughout history, the people of God have looked like it was checkmate and the king still had one more move. And we've seen that in our study. We saw this with Abraham and his wife, Sarah. They're 100 years old almost. And they're approaching 100. And she's approaching 90. They're promised a son 25 years earlier. 25 years earlier. And now it looks like it's totally impossible. It looks like there's no way. The devil's laughing. It looks like checkmate. That they're wrong. The king still had one more move. And against all odds and all expectations, God comes through, keeps his promise, and Isaac is born. We saw this also in the life of Joseph, the son of Jacob. Remember, he's thrown into a pit to die. He slowed, he's, then he's sold as a slave to Egypt. Then he's falsely accused of attempted rape, rape by a high-ranking Egyptian captain's wife. He's thrown into prison. Looks like checkmate. Game over. The devil's laughing. But the king still had one more move. So God gives Joseph the interpretation to Pharaoh's dream. Joseph's exalted to second most powerful man in Egypt. In the whole empire, the people of God are preserved through the famine and drought, through the leadership and wisdom of Joseph. We saw the same thing with Moses. Moses convinces a nation of oppressed slaves to run away from the most powerful man on earth. And Pharaoh sets out after them with his army. And they're backed up against the Red Sea. They got the Red Sea at their back. They got Pharaoh's chariots coming at them. It looks like checkmate. Game over. The devil's laughing. Moses, people said to Moses, what were you thinking? Moses says to God, what were you thinking? But the king still had one more move. So God parts the Red Sea and his people pass through and the Egyptian army goes in and he crushes them with the waters over top of them. We saw the same thing with Joshua. Joshua led the army of Israel up to Jericho. The walls looked like they could not possibly be penetrated. It looked like the promised land would never be a reality. The wall stood between them and the promised land. It looked like it's over, game over, checkmate. The devil's laughing. 
But God still had one more move. The king still had one more move. What do they do? They march around the walls. They shout. The walls come tumbling down, and they take not only Jericho, they begin to move into the promised land. We see this throughout the Bible. We're going to see it when we get to the life of King David. Remember, first of all, David, when he hears Goliath taunting the armies of the living God, it's more than he could take. So he challenges him, challenges him to, the, to this fight. So you have on one side, you have David, five foot four with a slingshot. In the other corner, you have Goliath, nine foot six with all the best weaponry available. It looks like game over. It looks like checkmate. The devil's laughing. But the king still had one more move, and David takes one smooth stone, puts it in his little slingshot, and with confidence in God, he swings it, and down goes a giant, and away goes the Philistine army. We'll see the same thing when we get to Daniel. Daniel's thrown into the den of lions because he refused to stop praying. The prophet of God has been served up basically as the main course for their dinner that night. Looks like checkmate. The devil's laughing. It looks like game over. But the king still had one more move. God intervenes that night. He puts the lions on a low-protein diet. The next day, Daniel's set free to go pray all he wants. We know the same truth about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He goes into Jerusalem one more time, knowing it will cost him his life. On Good Friday, they tried him. They judged him. They whipped him. They beat him. They mocked him. They scorned him. They hung him on a cross to die. And they took him off of that cross and they laid him in a tomb to rot, like people all throughout history have rotted in this sorry world. It looked like game over. It looked like checkmate. The devil is laughing. But the king said one more move. On Sunday morning, to the astonishment of all earth, of all heaven, of all hell, Jesus gets up and he walks out of the tomb in glorious power as the one who conquered sin and death forever. Now, I don't know what you're going through, but there is a pattern here that we all need to understand and see. I don't know what challenges that you're facing, but I know that some of you, in all honesty, would say, I feel like I'm in checkmate. I feel like game over. I don't have much hope in the situation I'm in, and the devil's laughing. And I want you to know it's not over. The king still has one more move. They think he can still come in and change it in just a snap of a finger, a twinkling of an eye. And so today, as we get ready to close this, I just want you guys to understand, don't don't stop hoping, don't stop believing, don't stop enduring, and never give up on the ones that you love. So dads, if we're going to be, if we want to see our kids really have a firsthand experience with God, we need to make sure that we are being transformed ourselves. We need to be the kind of men who are not just passing along information, but the men who are being changed and our kids see the change because we're men who look up, men who lighten up, men who line up, and men who never give up on our kids. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. First of all, we just thank you that you're such a good, good father to us, all of us. And we do pray, Lord, I do pray for all of us today that anyone who needs healing, Lord, from a father wound would would really receive it fully today in the name of Jesus. But help all of us dads, particularly, Lord, learn to look up, look up for healing constantly, continually, look up for help. And also that we'd line up our priorities and put our family 
before ourselves and everything else except you. And that we'd lighten up, that we'd be quick to overlook and, and quick to forgive and quick to, to cut slack to our families. And Lord, that we'd never give up. That we'd never give up on the ones that we love. Lord, I pray for every gathering that's going to happen, every phone call made, every conversation. pray that all of our dads would be honored today. And I pray all the dads that are connected somehow to this congregation will be honored by those in this church family. So we pray your blessing on them all. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Happy Father's Day.